This is an ABC podcast. Hi from David Rutledge. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. Welcome to the program where this week we're talking about race and about the way that we talk about race. Because in Australia, we talk about race a lot, but we don't do it very well, at least not in mainstream public discourse, where if you want to bring racism to people's attention, you're very likely to be told that white Australians aren't racist, or that we used to be racist, but we need to come together and get past all of that, or that making everything about race just panders to a culture of victimhood and endless grievance that, again, is is divisive and counterproductive to the whole project of being one and free, as our newly refurbished national anthem would have it. Well, these arguments all testify to a desire to sweep the issue of race under the carpet and to demonstrate that there are more important things to talk about. But race still matters. And indeed, my guest today has written a book that came out last year titled Why Race Still Matters. She is Alana Lenton. She's Associate Professor in Cultural and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University, and she joins me now. Alana, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Let's begin by talking broadly about the way that race is talked about or not talked about or generally dealt with in Australia. Is there something distinctive or peculiarly Australian about the discourse of race in this country, do you think? Um, I'd like to begin before I answer the question just by briefly acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from Gadigal land, unceded Gadigal territory. And I, I always begin in this way, not merely to, you know, do that ceremonial thing of acknowledging country, but because the way in which I've come to think about race is really related to the fact I'm very keenly aware of our existence on still colonized land. And I think the way in which we speak and don't speak about race and racism in Australia is bound up with the history and the present of that colonization and the inability uh, of many to actually consider what that means for our daily reality and for the daily reality of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the way I think about race uh, following, for example, Barna Hesse, one of the people I cite in the book, is as colonially constituted And obviously, I like to think about race in Australia as being a really good, I mean, in terms of scholarship and thinking about this stuff, a really good almost laboratory or, you know, place to think about how race is theorised and enacted in the everyday. But unfortunately, due to Australia's placement peripherally in terms of, you know, intellectual culture and politics and et cetera, it's often not placed centrally. And often we have this predominance of a North American vision of what race and racism are, uh, which are then kind of transposed onto... uh, This doesn't only happen in Australia. This happens also in other locations because of the global dominance of North America. But actually, what I'd like to do is think about race from the context of Australia in order to think more broadly internationally about how race functions because of that key dimension of the colonial constitution of race. However, as I said, um, I think many Australians aren't ready to have that conversation. And what we have instead is a sort of a repeated, um, almost obsession with that question of, are we really racist? Are Australians really racist? Isn't race something that can be placed in the past? And can't we all do better by moving on? And then when something erupts, like currently this you know, scandal around racism against black and Aboriginal players at Collingwood Football Club, then we have this kind of moral uh, hand-wringing about, you know, on the one hand, oh, is it these individuals that need to be weeded out? 
or are we systemically racist? And what does this mean for us? And when I say us, I mean uh, white Australians who seem to see racism only as individual finger pointing rather than taking a step back and thinking about how we can look at the history of race and how that continues to inform the present. Yeah, and of course, Australia has a, a colonial present as well as a colonial past. And you, mm-hmm. you've, I mean, you've lived in uh, the UK, in France, in Italy, and I mean, these are all former colonial powers that that sort of ha- are still shackled to that colonial past in various interesting ways. But they're not actively participating in the colonisation of land in the way that we are still in Australia. What, what sort of difference does that make, do you think? I think, firstly, I need to, I think we need to qualify this notion that these countries are former colonies and that we're now in this kind of post-colonial landscape in Europe um, vis-a-vis a place like Australia or indeed the US, which rarely gets spoken about as a settler colony because of the predominance of slavery as the, you know, the overriding narrative about what, how race functions and what racism is in the uh, US American context. Uh, there's a really interesting book that came out from the British legal scholar Nadine Elanani last year in which she proves very nicely, I think, how Britain continues to be colonial in its political formation because of the degree to which its material wealth and its uh, social structure is still underpinned by its relationship to, you know, the the officially formerly colonized uh, countries uh, through uh, immigration, for example, and the way in which it constitutes itself and its borders. So that's one thing I'd say, firstly. But I do think that this deep sense of walking on occupied and colonized and stolen land lends a different quality to how we understand race in Australia. And when I when I wrote the book, I, I, I talked about how my relationship to as a scholar and as an activist of thinking about what race does, and I do speak about race as doing something rather than being something, was really it's almost like it, there, was a, there was a huge impact from moving here and understanding this. I understood it intellectually, but I didn't understand it viscerally until I moved here. And I think that's something that, despite being born and brought up, up here, many white Australians haven't completely integrated into their, into their way, ways of thinking and, and practice. Let's talk a bit more about that distinction between race as, as something that that is versus something that does. Uh, I'm very interested in the the definition of race that you work with, which is a, a technology of power for the management of human difference. Can you unpack that a little? What are you on about there? <laughs> so, I mean, the the last part of that is so it's a technology for the management of human difference, uh, for the maintenance of white supremacy. That's the last part, and I look at that both. You know, <laughs> I missed the important bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not. It, it's all important. I, I would hope, but I think that's really important in terms of you know what I want to say that race is actually doing. So, race following people like uh, Sibyl Anden, uh, like Patrick Wolfe, like Stuart Hall, who are all theorists. Uh, who I mention in the book, is spoken of as a process uh, which is continually producing and reproducing itself. And at, at one point, I'm referring to, to, to Patrick Wolfe, I talk about race as an idea and the need of constant reassurance um, because it's actually really an unstable concept and it needs to be enacted via practices, so via laws, via policies, via discourses, via you know, cultural productions, all of these types of things form what uh, Alexander Wahelia calls a series of racializing assemblages. In other words, ways in which race is enacted as an idea 
through the everyday in order to uh, maintain this dominance of white power in the colonial uh, context. So that's why I think it's much more efficient to talk about race as a project and a process. In other words, as doing something rather than being something. Because what we generally think race is, as as being is, you know, this kind of taxonomy uh, of categorization, which links, um, which is very much placed in the body, uh, which is about, you know, hierarchies of difference, uh, which can be biologically delineated, etc. And that's a key function of race, but it's only something that develops at a later stage. So we really only have this development, you know, following the Enlightenment in the 18th and the 19th century, into a solidification of uh, race as biology after we have already several centuries of colonization in which in practice indigenous people and enslaved African people are racially considered distinct and then discriminated and exploited on that basis. Right. So, so just to be clear then, you're saying that that 19th century discourse of race as being grounded in biology and all the, the bogus racial science around that, that that was only possible because of a preceding age of racial rule, which which sort of laid the groundwork for, for it to become possible for anthropologists and geneticists to come up with those theories. Yeah, I mean, already very early on, we see the debate about whether Indigenous people can be considered fully human, but within a Christian vision of the world of what humanity meant, which is whether or not people were made in the image of God. Are these God's children or are they outside of humanity? So those questions are already driving you know, the relationship between Europeans and Indigenous people from very early on um, after 1492. But the theorization of, of this taxonomy, of this idea that we can, you know, rank humans according to these kind of biological categories and that we do strange things like cranial measurements and all the rest of it in order to create this kind of pseudoscientific theory behind all of this only develops after the fact, it's not already there and driving, um, you know, we have this idea that all of these people are, you know, exploitable because they're not fully human. Let's go out and get them. It wasn't quite like that. Rather, race develops in situ as a function of the need to legitimize the fact that these people are being, you know, genocided, that their lands are being uh, stolen from them and that they're being exploited for labor and so on and so forth. Well, the title of your book is Why Race Still Matters. And when I think about that title, I, I think about how today race seems to be under discussion in one way or another everywhere at all times. You've got a, a resurgence of explicit public racism and uh, race realism, uh, quote unquote, over on the far right. Over on the left, there are movements for racial justice getting people out into the streets in countries all around the world. So when you want to talk about why race still matters, who's saying it doesn't matter? I think the general liberal impetus in societies like Australia is that race really should be relegated to the past, that it is something of the past and that it should be left there. And my point is not that I want to, in any sense, organize society on the basis of race, but the, simple, the quite simple point is that if we want to get to the bottom of something and we want to try to undo its effects in this case, we actually need to talk about it. And what I mean by talking about it is making it a serious object of study that should be at the center of our inquiry rather than at the periphery. And it certainly shouldn't be something that we only talk about when some kind of, you know, so-called crisis emerges, which is the way in which you seem to deal with it um, 
uh, you know, frequently when, when racism arises. And the other part of that is that I think the way in which race is spoken about in general is, and you're right, I mean, there's a lot of obsession with race and we are talking about race, but if you listen carefully, it's not spoken of as race. So the idea is that we can replace race with something else. So if I have a problem, for example, with immigration or, you know, uh, there being too many Muslim people these days in the country or whatever the latest racist, um, you know, furor is, I will say, well, I'm not being racist. I'm merely pointing out that these people are incompatible with the Australian way of life. So we don't talk about race in order to talk about. And I'm saying that we need to actually call a spade a spade and say, well, actually what you're doing is making racializing distinctions here. And let's deal with that in a forthright way. Because often the liberal response is, well, you know, there are both sides here to the conversation. We must understand why certain people are uncomfortable with too much immigration or whatever the thing might be. And therefore we need to see it as a form of debate rather than seeing, well, actually there are, you know, as we were saying before, there are historical precedents that have led us to this point where race continues to underpin the ways in which our society uh, societies are organized. And then we have to deal with that in order to be able to think, well, where do we want to be in the future? Mm. But let, let's take that hypothetical white person, the, the hypothetical white liberal with, with impeccably non-racist opinions who says, you know, I, I'm welcome and celebrate people from other cultures, but I do have concerns about immigration. I have concerns about the incompatibility of certain cultures with Western democracy, anti-feminism and so on and so forth. And and what bothers me, liberal white person, is that to voice these concerns means that I get labelled a racist. And free speech is very important and we have to have we have to be able to have these discussions. I mean, what's your response to that to that part of the claim that says that the the charge of racism is getting used to shut down discussion among perfectly well-meaning people? Well, this is to do with the way in which I try to write about what racism is in the book. And I'm not the first person to do this, obviously, but we have only one register in which we understand racism, and that's a form of moral wrongdoing. So when somebody evokes racism, Rather than seeing that as descriptive of a situation, white liberal people are sort of programmed to see it as an accusation. White liberal and white people in general are programmed to see that as a personal accusation. Now, the other part of that, which I think a lot of people find very difficult to deal with, is that the current racial structure, the current racial formation in our societies benefits white people. And that is very uncomfortable for people to admit because the obvious uh, next step is, well, what am I going to relinquish in order to make this a more racially just place? And that's a conversation, again, which we are not equipped to have because we have very little racial literacy and we believe that racism is merely an exercise of blame and individual finger pointing. Here in the Philosopher's Zone, I'm David Rutledge and I'm talking this week with Alana Lenton about race and racism. Alana is the author of a uh, wonderful book that came out last year that's a particularly incisive and a really helpful exploration of the subject. It's titled Why Race Still Matters and you can find publication details on the Philosopher's Zone website. When you say that 
race is a, a technology of power and control. How does that differ from the notion that race is a social construct? Because that, that's a well-rehearsed liberal opinion, but it's, <laughs> it's one that you don't find particularly helpful, right? Or not helpful enough. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, race is a social construct, obviously. Gender is a social construct, obviously. It's very interesting. I was thinking about this before, and I was thinking that when I first started teaching uh, here, I'd ask um, students whether they knew you know, what social construct meant. And almost nobody knew, you know, this is fine. This is first year, but today it's completely different. So there's been this kind of, maybe through the internet, a lot of people have come, become familiar with this notion of race being a social construct. But when you ask them to explain, well, how is it socially constructed? They draw a blank, right? So it's almost like a mantra. So I'm not arguing that race isn't a social construct, but what I want us to do is to show exactly how it's been socially constructed and more than that, how it continues to be constructed through various, you know, as I said before, policies, uh, laws, uh, forms of behavior, uh, the education system in detail. We need to be able to show how this is constructed. Now, the other part of that, and here I borrow from people like Ian Hacking and Barna Hesse, is that usually when we talk about race as a social construct, we want to refute the biological idea of race. So we want to say there's, there's no truth in racist biology, right? That's all bogus, right? Rather, race is something that is you know, a social idea about how people differ to each other, which, which is cultural. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not real. It's not actual. But in order to say, uh, to make this argument, we have to say, well, if you ask me, well, what is a race the social construct of? We say, well, race is the social construct of the idea of the biological, of, of the biological idea of race. So we come full circle back to the biological idea. And we haven't explained at all, in tandem with what I said earlier, how that biological idea comes about. So all of this work has to be done in order to then simply sit back and say, well, race is a social construct. And when I say that, I know what that means. At the moment, we don't know what that means, or most people have difficulty expressing what that means. It seems also that to reduce race to a social construct, is to, I mean, it's, it's sort of a fine line that you have to walk, isn't it? Because on one hand, yes, as you say, race is socially constructed, but there's also the sense in which race is lived in the body. Race is experienced as a, as a bodily condition. Can you talk about that strange sort of uh, paradox, if you like? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's the other part that I didn't come to and which I do discuss in the book is that by talking about things as social construct, in the popular imagination, we somehow link that to being um, fake or unreal. So it's not, it's a myth, right? Which is true. But on the other hand, race is intimately connected with bodies. It is about heredity. It is about, you know, this whole idea that race is passed down through the blood. Like you think about the one drop rule in the context of slavery in the United States. These are all the ideas that drive what race is about. So it is bodily. And it is also, as you say, lived through the body. One good example that we have of this is the ways in which, um, you know, health and uh, disease affect differently racialized people differently, which is also about how uh, things like poverty, things about, you know, conditions of housing, access to, to equitable health care, all of these types of things which are social, but which have an effect on how individual health and the health of entire groups of people who are racialized in particular ways, um, how that manifests. So I look at the work of um, the anthropolo physical anthropologist Clarence Gravely, for example, who says that race isn't biology, 
but it may become biology. In other words, through being uh, exposed to generations of ill health as a function of racism, which is caused, which causes, you know, inequality in everyday life chances, people become more sick. So you become exposed, for example, to illnesses like heart disease or diabetes because your diet is poorer, because you can't ex access health, uh, healthier food, just as a, a simple example. Now, the problem that we have in relation to the current COVID-19 pandemic, where um, you know it's been pointed out that black and brown people in the UK, in the US, indigenous people in the US, uh, Latino people in the US, etc., are getting um, COVID-19 more easily and dying more frequently is that we revert back to a biological idea of race. And we tend to see this as a natural propensity that people have to getting more sick rather than looking precisely at how socially and economically people suffer more illness as a consequence of racism. Yeah, it's really interesting to me the way the pandemic gets framed as a, a medical issue, as an epidemiological issue, as an economic issue, and an issue that requires us all to pull together because we're all in it together. It's, it's like COVID is the great leveller. Can you talk a bit more about what else we see when we bring race into the picture? Well, I mean, obviously, COVID has not proven to be the great leveler. I think anybody who's still trotting out that mantra almost a year into this thing is living on a different planet because very, very quickly we saw the racial disparities. Uh, in Australia, even before we started to be worried about the potential effects on Aboriginal people, and of course, the Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations have done it absolutely fantastic job of stopping that potential disaster. But then when we think about what happened in the uh, the towers in Melbourne and the lockdown, uh, which was enacted merely because the people were mainly uh, black and brown, before we even started talking about those things, which played out and will continue to play out in the course of the uh, pandemic as it goes on, and we can see that also in other countries, we had Australia deciding to send Chinese residents to Christmas Island. Okay. And, you know, this is what this country does well, uh, in inverted commas, is to utilize the border as a solution to almost everything. Okay. And we had very little questioning of whether or not this was, um, or this continues to be something that is logical in terms of pandemic management and the racializing implications of this. Now, obviously we can point out the hypocrisy of sending Chinese people to Christmas Island and then allowing all of these people off the cruise liner to wander around Sydney and to go home and to obviously contract, uh, in many cases, uh, COVID-19. But it's not just, I like to say that the hypocrisy is the point. In other words, that disparity between how people of color are treated uh, and how uh, white people are treated is part of how race and racism are enacted and replayed and maintained. And once we look at that, then we can start to think about all the various mechanisms that are uh, being used. So, for example, fining people for not wearing masks and how that's actually played out in terms of who gets fined, what neighbourhoods are targeted. Are they really the neighbourhoods where COVID is, is actually the bigger problem or are they the same old neighbourhoods where people of colour, Aboriginal and so on, people live? And when we look at these two things in tandem, we can ask, well, are these solutions the best ones for tackling what is a public health crisis and not a crisis of racialized policing or should not be a, a crisis of racialized policing. Well, you mentioned earlier the need to increase racial literacy in public discourse. How do we do that? 
I think that in Australia, there are many people who are involved in doing this in one way or the other. Uh, there are many um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars and activists and people who very effectively use media and the internet. I'm thinking, for example, of the Indigenous X project and others who are contributing to developing our racial literacy. But I'm also a little bit nervous about racial literacy because I think it's somehow, it's kind of taken off as a concept in recent times in Australia. And I think there's a, a risk of weakening this or diluting it to mean something along the lines of anti-racism training or diversity training of which we have, you know, a lot. <laughs> People are, you know, constantly trotting out these kinds of uh, initiatives. And to a certain extent, there's money to be made in becoming an anti-racist trainer or a diversity trainer. Um, you know, again, Sivanandan from the Institute of Race Relations already back in the 1980s spoke about the ruse of, you know, at the time it was called racism awareness training. And the way he put it in his typically blunt fashion was, you know, getting a bunch of white people to sit in a room and cry about how racist they are is something that's unhelpful. And I think also, you know, um, the Aboriginal writer and legal scholar Alison Whitaker spoke about this recently in Mianjin in relation to, you know, the concept of white privilege and white people checking their privilege and what that actually means, how it often kind of lets people off the hook. Um, because they perform this, you know, this moral mea culpa about, you know, being so privileged. And now can I just move on into the, into the future, into the sunny future, right? So racial literacy for me is not about any of these things. Racial literacy as a concept, you know, develops with people like Francis Windens Twine in the United States or Lani Guinier. And Windens Twine, for example, first comes up with a concept in relation to black children in uh, biracial families. And she says it's really important for these black children to know about racism because often in their upbringing, they're not sufficiently exposed to how racism works. And so when they go out into the world, they have a, they have a practical problem. And so racial literacy, first and foremost, is for people who are affected by race and racism in their daily lives in order to better conceptualize how that works in order to navigate those white spaces and in order to be able to survive them. It's not a training program for white people to know how to navigate racism in order to appear to be less racist, okay? So that's one thing that I think is really important. Taking a step back from that, I think that, you know, it's strange in a way. Uh, recently, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age ran an article about critical race theory in Australia. And when I spoke to the journalist, he said, well, are we teaching this stuff in schools? You know, is it everywhere in the schools? Because this is now this new notion that critical race theory is this weird ideology that's infecting our school children and all the rest of it. I said, listen, I wish we were talking about race even in a minimum way in schools and universities. Even in universities in, the, in, in Australia, there are so few courses explicitly on race that are run. And so we have a situation in which people of all walks of life simply don't know how to navigate the racial conversation. So while on the one hand, I think we have to be wary about what racial literacy is and be very clear that it's a study of races historically, sociologically, anthropologically, culturally, politically, okay? That it's not about ticking a few boxes to become more diverse or something like that. Um, at the same time, we need to mainstream race throughout our education system so that people become more comfortable with talking about race with the ultimate aim of undoing its effects, which of course is what we, we all want to achieve, or at least those of us who are anti-racist want to achieve. Yeah, very much a work in progress. Mm. This is uh, this has been a really interesting conversation, a very important conversation too. Um, Alana Linton, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. 
And Alana Lenton is Associate Professor in Cultural and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University. She's also the author of Why Race Still Matters. Publication details on the website, that's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge, tweetable any old time at David P Zone, and looking forward to your company again next week. See you then. Music